This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. I gave a series, uh, it was just, it was over a year ago uh, during the summer on spiritual lessons from Alfred the Great. Any of you that heard that series, it's, it's funny because people that went through that series still get sort of upset when people like one of my World War I series better uh, because it's like, that was a great series. Well, it was di- a different series because it focused on one man and one man's life. And it is truly extraordinary. If you haven't heard that series, Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great, I highly uh, recommend it. Deeply stirring to me. And when I was speaking in Texas uh, a few days ago, uh, this one man wanted to know why I didn't bring up any of my Alfred uh, messages. And it just sort of triggered a thought in my head that I really sort of would like to bring up an Alfred message. And what I'm giving this morning is actually what I would say is the message I want to hear this morning. Have you ever uh, had a thought like that? Like as a pastor, that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to give you the message that you need to hear. However, my guess is if I need to hear this, it's possible that you need to hear it too. And it's not that I don't know it. Most sermons I give, I know, but that's not the reason I give them is because I already know that. It's because I need to rejuvenate that truth in my soul. I need to enliven it afresh. I need to revive my spirit's connection and grip on that truth. And so I will revisit these truths often and always. In fact, I would say this is one of the most defining messages for my life. And it fits me, if you know me. This is like what makes me tick. And yet at the same time, I want someone to preach it to me. And since that person usually doesn't exist whenever I come to that conclusion. It turns out to sometimes be me that needs to preach to myself. And so in a strange sense, that's what I'm going to be doing uh, this morning is preaching to myself. This is a message uh, you know, given to Eric Ludy, uh, but you can listen in and I have a hunch it'll bless you and encourage you and strengthen you as you navigate forward in your Christian life. I sort of like the title, by the way, Waking the Yeti. And so Annie, I, I told her, I said, I'm sorry about the title, because I'm always giving her hard titles to design for. And I said, maybe you could have some mysterious furry creature in the dark, uh, you know, that's like waking the Yeti. Instead, she gave me a Himalayan mountains shot. She said, I think this is easier. <laughs> so it's, it's nice. Well done, Annie. <clears throat> so right now on the campus, we're remodeling. And however, it's not just remodeling of what you would see visually, we're actually remodeling everything at Ellerslie. So we're going into our systems, we're going into the way we do things. And after 13 years of doing things, you have a tendency to build up uh, barnacles of behavior or patterns of doing things that aren't necessarily the best, but they work. And so you end up with systems that could be improved, but it's a lot of energy to improve them, and you have to have time to do it, which is why many of us end up with bad patterns or less than stellar patterns that exist for years of our life. And so sometimes it's really nice to have a season like what we have at Ellerslie right now, which is a remodel season. But it's not just a remodel of the interiors or exteriors, which is what we're doing here at Ellerslie, but it's also a remodel of our systems. But it's not just a remodel of our exterior, interior, and systems. It's a remodel of even ourselves. Like right now, I have an exhaustive list that I'm working on of every dimension of my life and saying a remodel step that I want to go through, whether it's in uh, the way I handle my finances, whether it's in the way that I study uh, in the morning and my my morning routine, whether it is in my communication with my wife, whether it is in the communication with my children and my relationship with them, whether it is how I lead this ministry or how I work with my team. One of them could be how I lead this church and what we do in this church and how we do it in this church. You see, this is a remodel season, so I'm saying remodel everything. 
Now, some of you might be a little jealous that Eric is in every model season. At the same time, some of you may be very happy you're not. Because some of you don't like change like Eric likes change. I like change, but not just change, like random change, like let's do something completely different. You know, let's you know, foster guinea pigs. You know, so it's like we use this campus, we have you know, a million guinea pigs. We're going for two million next year. Uh, so in other words, I'm not changing the purpose statement, the direction, it's how we do it so that it can be done better. And I like that, and that's, part of, that's why I say this idea is very Eric Ludi-ish. Because I love refining things. I love doing things better than I did them the day before. And there's a lot of benefit in my spiritual life because of that. There's a lot of hazards if you work alongside of Eric because of that. Because I'm like, hey, we could change this. And everyone's looking at me going, not again. We're, we're going to change it again. And that's, you know, I guess it's either the, you know, the positives and the negatives that come with uh, an Eric Ludi-run organization. But remodeling everything. The message I yearn to hear is this one. This is what I want to hear afresh this morning. So it's sort of like, okay, have you ever had it where you're, you know, you're trying to pick a movie or you're trying to pick a podcast to listen to or you're trying to pick a song to listen to and you oftentimes go to that one part of you, it's like, what do I feel like? And that's a dangerous location of your soul. Have you ever noticed? If that part of your soul controls you in life, you usually don't turn out very good because you're based on what you want, what you crave, and that's not necessarily how God leads. But there is this dimension of in us, which is, I think God built, which is there's something that we need to strengthen and to empower our life. And that's sort of what this is. This is like, that's what my spiritual life needs right now. I need a fresh boost in this exact domain. I am, now you guys don't know what this message is totally about. You know it has something to do with remodeling and, and waking a Yeti. Uh, but there is something that seems to happen over time in the Christian life, and I can only evaluate it because I've had some time in my Christian life now. You know, when you're young in your Christian life, you can only say, well, maybe in the future, this could be, you know, something I walk through, but you don't know. But now I can look back, and I'm sure that when I'm, you know, 85, I can look back even more. But right now, at the age of almost 52, I can see seasons of strength, and then I see a waning, and I see a weakening of resolve, and I see this desperation begin to trigger in this weakening. It's like, God, there has to be more. What am I doing? I, I used to be thinking like this. I used to be living like this. Every person I ran into, I was sharing Jesus with, and now it's like I have all these justifications of why that's unnecessary, and why, hell, oh, you, know, you know, you don't always have to be doing that, and suddenly I reach that point. It's like, enough. I want the full measure of what God intends the human life to have. And for whatever reason, I'm running on low fuel right now, and I don't know why. It's like, do I have a leak in the engine? I mean, what you, what's, what's going on here? And so usually that's a revival season. And so the last time I preached, which I think was last Sunday, I can't quite remember, that's what my message was about, was revival. And that's, in a sense, what I'm sensing I need. And what's funny is if you ask me, do you feel like you're in a low season? Not really. I feel very strong spiritually, but I feel like I could easily call it quits as far as how high I'm willing to aim. Because I've had enough trial at this level, why would I go up to the next level and, and encounter more trial? And so I'm sort of, I have that retirement bait that's hanging out near me. I know I'm only 52, all right? So, or almost 52. And so you could say that's, that's way too early for retirement thoughts, Eric. Well, by the way, I don't encourage retirement thoughts in my life. I'm not looking to retire ever. However, I understand where the thinking comes from. It's like, look, I've lived hard, I've lived strong, I've given everything, and now it's like, hey, we'll let these guys sort of take that hit. I'll let them go to the front lines, I'll support them. As opposed to saying, all right, God, I got one shot at this thing called life, I'm ready, I'm in. I want to be all in, and I don't care if I die doing it. And I need that fresh impetus, that fresh push to not justify any decrease or any coasting in my life. I want to be all in at full measure. The craving for something more. So if you go through Ellerslie, you hear about the endless frontier. But it's a mentality. It's a mentality that I have had since being a young man, well, since I was a young man. And it came from a coach, a vocal coach that I had named Dr. Scott Martin. 
And I had been training with him. He wanted me to be training six hours a day. And he used to train the Olympic long-distance runners how to breathe. And so he was a master Yoda-like coach of the human voice. And I had been training under him for a year and averaging probably about two and a half hours of training a day, which, by the way, is a lot of training when you're dealing with singing. And at the end of that year, I, was just, I just wanted to be a professional. What, what do I need to do to be a professional? This guy trained some of the best vocalists in the world, and it's like I've worked with him for a year. I have to be arriving somewhere near that level, and he, was, he never once gave me a compliment. And so finally, I was like uncomfortable, and I, I asked the question, Scott, how good am I? And he laughs. That was his response. He laughs. He's like, oh, you finally got up the guts to ask. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'm bouncing on my toes awkwardly. He says, Eric, you played soccer, didn't you? I go, yeah. He goes, how old were you when you started playing soccer? I was like, seven. He goes, okay, imagine you're seven years old. You've been playing soccer for one month. How good were you? I go, I stunk. He goes, exactly. <laughs> he said, but Eric, you need to realize that singing is an endless frontier. You've taken one step into an endless frontier, and you're asking me how far you've gone. Well, you've gone one step into an endless frontier. However, that one step is further than 99.999% of the rest of the human race. But never pitch your tent. That one line, that little speech, impacted my life because I recognized something about me, and that is that I was looking for that flat piece of ground to call it quits. This is good enough. It's good enough territory. And we all have the bait towards good enough territory. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our finances, in our message delivery of Jesus Christ to the generation in which we live, to the level of givenness that we give to the word of God, all of these things have a good enough territory because we look around us and we're like, well, no one else is doing it that way. I mean, I am so far beyond everyone else. This is good enough. And we pitch our tent. And Scott seemed to know that I had that bent, that I was just wanting to reach this point of excellence in my singing, then I could let off in this training. Because you can't keep this training up forever, two and a half hours a day. You've got to be kidding me. And he noticed that about me. It's like, hey, when has the end come to this? It's like, Eric, you've just started. Why would you end now? And the point that I, it was like, if I'm better than 99.9999% of the rest of the human race, then I should be able to call it quits. He says, that's the great human mistake, is that there is so much more you could pursue, and yet you justify stopping because you are ahead. Those of us in this room have been given something great. It is a treasure. It is an advantage in this generation. You have been entrusted, and so have I, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and a clear understanding of his word. Very few people on earth have that. And so, yes, you have something that is maybe uh, something that 99.999% of the rest of the human race does not have, and it may not be an exaggeration when I say that. However, do not pitch your tent. Do not look for the good enough territory and call it quits and just coast from that point forward. But you, like me, maybe need that message to say, pull up the tent stakes, Eric. Onward, march. The re-education of Eric Ludi, starting from scratch. I've shared this in multiple semesters. It's not really a part of any of our training, but every now and then it just sort of comes up. And there, there are multiple things that were functioning in Eric Ludi's life growing up. One was sort of a, I almost like call it a mental fog. But you don't realize you have a mental fog if you've always had a mental fog. And there were certain points in my life where the fog would blow away and I would see clearly. And so even when I was first married, I remember that I would be driving down the road and I would always, when Leslie and I were going on a cross-country trip, I'd always have her bring a notebook with us. And so if I had that mental clarity, because I would have thoughts, ideas. I mean, my mind worked like a machine when I didn't have the mental fog. But when I had the mental fog, I couldn't hardly think. So she'd ask me, just, oh, I just, just can't get it. Just can't get those synopses to fire quite right. But when I would get that clarity, it's like, get, get, get your pen out. Get, get, get the notebook out. Okay, I have thoughts. I have ideas. And it was a critical moment in my life when I recognized that I've been given the mind of Christ and that I need to resist this mental fog. 
and actually that's a transformative time in my life. I don't live with a mental fog anymore. And it's because when I was young, somewhere around 23, 24, I said no to it in the authority of Christ's name. And so there's these transformative moments in my life. One of them is what I could call the re-education of Eric Ludi. I was, so just to give you an idea, I was in college. I was doing a double major in biology and chemistry. And I was getting A's. Why would Eric need to be re-educated? It was a premier college. It was a premier you know, study system that would, you know, had a very high placement uh, rate in med, medical, medical schools. So there should be nothing needed more in Eric Ludi except for the fact that I noticed something about me. I didn't actually know anything, and I didn't know how to use my brain. I knew how to answer tests, test questions. I knew how to study for tests and do good on tests, and then I would forget everything. As long as I had a test and it was fresh, I would remember, but I, I began to panic realizing I'm an idiot. <laughs> I really don't know anything. I remember that, that came crashing down on me when I was in Indiana. I don't even remember what I was in Indiana for, but it was a Sunday morning, and this man gets up to preach, and he takes like two scriptures, and he spends an hour on them, and he unpacks them historically, and he breaks out the Hebrew in these... And I remember thinking, how in the world could a human do that? Because if you gave me those two scriptures, the message would be as long as me reading from the start to the end of those scriptures. And I had no commentary from that point. It's like, eh, and this happened, and that's what it said. I don't have any thoughts. I mean, there's nothing original taking place inside of Eric Ludi. And so I recognized with a strange, odd panic that there was a lack inside of me, but it was not just a lack inside of me, it was a lack inside of my whole generation. So either I accept it because, well, everyone else I'm sure probably has the same problem, or I fight it. And so this, what I'm calling the re-education of Eric Ludi, began somewhere when I was like 18 or 19, and well, maybe it was a little later than that, maybe 20. And I started from ground zero, grammar. I know, was, my sister was a grammar teacher, so I was like, okay, I want you to teach me. She was a handwriting instructor. My handwriting stunk. By the way, if you see my handwriting again, it seems to have slipped a little again. <laughs> However, I began to learn all these things over again, and I wanted to learn to think and reason. I wanted to use my mind the way God intended a mind to be used, so I literally started over in my education, which seems totally irrational because most of us just can't wait to get done with our education, let alone start again. And yet, the man standing in front of you is who he is because of these decisions. And even that, I still had the fog. But I would still have these moments where my mind could function and I tasted something. And then finally it was like, okay, Lord, I need to function the way you designed me. And if I only have one shot at this thing called life, I need grace to be able to live this out. So Lord, help me. So this, what I'm trying to circle for you and for myself, it's a fight within to not just settle, to not just accept, but to redo if necessary, to start again if necessary, to revive, to refresh, to keep going after something higher instead of settling down here in the valley. The yearning to improve. So there's our Yeti, okay? So you're wondering, waking the Yeti, there's our term, yearning to improve. So it's somewhat of a, you know, a way to get people to listen to a message that they might not otherwise listen to, because they're interested in yetis, they're not really interested in biblical truth. We'll get them. Uh, and of course, they may stop the podcast right here. You know, they're like, oh, that's not even about a furry yeti. So the yearning to, you can make your yeti furry, I'm sure, you know, grow a little beard while you're, you're yearning to improve, and it's, it's fine. Uh, but the yearning to improve, the yeti, the strange and inexplicable drive that some humans have, but most don't. And I don't know why this exists. Why it is that some people can be totally satisfied not improving and just being who they are, burping and scratching their way through life and just saying, hey, I'm good enough. And most marriages struggle because of this exact dynamic. And it's strange, but women have a built-in map for what a man ought to be. Why God gave the woman the map, I'm not exactly sure, and it's oftentimes bothered me. Because a woman sees that a man should be more, and what she has a tendency to do because the man doesn't seem to want to do anymore is she has a tendency to nag. 
It's like, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. And technically, she could even be right. However, that's not how she's supposed to handle the information download that God has given her. She's supposed to inspire. She's supposed to encourage. She's supposed to help him rise up. However, a man oftentimes justifies his behavior because he's better than the guy down the street. Would you rather be married to Chuck? You know, look at Chuck. He beats his wife. I don't even beat you. I just don't talk to you. In other words, the man justifies his low level of behavior because it's still higher than someone else down the street. And that is the surest form of decline in relationship. And so if that woman can inspire and the man can respond, as I always say, put, the woman's supposed to put herself in that, that high castle window and call out, help me, help me. And it's amazing. A man will go, huh. You need help. And uh, he'll come up with all sorts of creative solutions to somehow rescue her. A man is designed to rise up, to actually increase in his level of behavior. And there's something about this male-female relationship that actually calls on that. And for the most part, we've lost that art. But it's still designed within us. God intends us to rise up, not to decay and go down. So here's our guy, Alfred the Great. And I, you, know, you don't have a good photo of the guy, and I technically don't know if this is what he looked like, this nice side shot. Uh, during my series on him, I had a, a statue shot from the front. And I, you know, I, again, I wasn't living in these days, so I don't know. You should see some of the other pictures. This is in that time of like old English art where there's like funny noses going out and everything. So you really don't, I don't know what this guy looked like, but I picture him being rather noble. And he's a great man in history. And most people have never even heard of him. You know, they, they think like Arthur, uh, King Arthur, and they mix him up with King Alfred. Two very different characters, right? This man is the reason England even exists. England was taken over by the Vikings, and this one man is going to rise up and defy all the odds. You need to hear the series to truly understand the girth and the grandeur of his story, but it is remarkable. It truly is. He, by the way, when he was living, he wasn't known as Alfred the Great. People didn't come up to him and say, hey, the Great, could I have a meeting with you? He, that was like 400 years later that he got that moniker, that tag. He was just Alfred. And yet he lived a great life. So on uh, the statue of Alfred in Wantage, there's an inscription, and this is what it reads. Alfred found learning dead, and he restored it. Education neglected, and he revived it. The laws powerless, and he gave them force. The church debased, and he raised it. The land ravaged by a fearful enemy from which he delivered it. Alfred's name shall live as long as mankind shall respect the past. Whew. All right, now I don't know that I, any of us are going to have a statue made of us when we depart, or an inscription like that. However, I want us to live in the same way. We've inherited a generation that is not that impressive, and it's not that different than Alfred's generation. And yet, what is it going to say? What would the inscription, if the Holy Spirit could write an inscription, even if the people of this earth don't, if they wrote an inscription about our, if the Holy Spirit wrote that inscription, what would he say? When I found something in a decayed situation, what did I do? Did I just say, well, it's the way it is? Or did I fix it? Did I change it? If I saw darkness sweeping over the land, did I just you know, passively say, yep, that's just the way it is, too bad? Or did I fight it? You see, this statement about Alfred shows something, a bearing in him that I believe we as the church need. We need to fight. We need the feistiness. We need the vision that God intended us to be change agents in our generation. Alfred's rabid yeti. This man had a yearning to improve that is maybe unprecedented in all of history. And I mean that. It's possibly one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. This man is like, remember how many brothers, brothers he had but, and sisters, but he was the youngest in his family. And he, there was no possible way he was going to become king for, because for him to become king, his dad would have to pass away. And then all of his older brothers would have to pass away, which happened. And he's going to become king at a young age in the worst time a king could ever be called upon. The Vikings are ravaging the territory, and he is stuck defending his little country of Wessex, which was one piece of Great Britain at the time. 
and he has a weak military system, and they have a marvelous military system. The Vikings were machines, and yet he refuses to back down. And he's going to take this wasted territory of Wessex, and he's going to transform it. So what did Alfred inherit? Anyway, you, we could moan and groan about what we've inherited in this generation. What did Alfred inherit? An inoperative and an ineffective military system, a territory of unwalled cities, a, a weak navy unable to control the Wessex shoreline, a coinage, that's the money system, that was not respected or valued, an illiterate people, a language without any system of learning and no books, zero books in the Anglo-Saxon tongue, a nation of confused laws and uncertain consequences. What's the law on this one? Well, we're not sure. Well, what if I did violate that? We don't know what would happen to you. It's like that doesn't lead to a stable environment. A people stuck in their unhealthy traditions of defeat, a once Christian culture that had forgotten its amazing past, a Viking enemy that wanted to eat him and his people for lunch, a Viking enemy that was stronger than him and more ready to fight. Welcome to your kingdom, Alfred. No one wants to be king in this situation. In, in a strange way, you have a little kingdom too. It's called your body. You've inherited a very challenging situation, which is not altogether different than this one. And as a result, the question is, what are you going to do with your one shot at ruling? You're like, why, didn't I, why wasn't I born in an easier time? Come on, why did I get now as my time? Well, that's what he could say, but he didn't say that. He just rose up, and he responded with vigor, knowing that when you have a territory to rule, you can either subside into silence, you can be passive and give up, or you can rise up and utilize what you do have to change things. So there's a book that greatly impacted me, and it was, it's called The White Horse King by Dr. Benjamin Merkel. Uh, Matt Powell, if you guys know Matt out in uh, Franklin, Tennessee, he used to be here in Windsor, and he knows that Scottish Chiefs really impacted my life. In fact, the third chapter of Scottish Chiefs is named Ellerslie, just to give you an idea of how much that book impacted my life, right? It's about the story of William Wallace. And so he sent a book in the mail to me, and he, it was with some cryptic line like, just as Scottish Chiefs impacted you, this is the book that has greatly impacted me. And so that was, I guess, enough to get me to, like, crack it open, right? And once I cracked it open, uh, I ended up doing an entire summer series on this. This is so moving, so powerful. So I, I encourage you to do it. Of course, if you said, should I read the book or should I go through the podcast series? What kind of question is that? I can't believe you're even thinking of asking that. So this is what uh, Dr. Merkel says. Seeing the deplorable state of his own inadequate educations, this is... Al Alfred, he's seen the deplorable state of his own inadequate education. Well, that sounds familiar. And the general level of ignorance found throughout his kingdom, Alfred set himself to righting this grievous wrong. It, it was clear that Wessex would need to humble herself and look for help without. Just as Alfred had looked to the expert sailors of Frisia to train his navy, now the king began searching near and far for the best Christian scholars who could be enticed to Wessex to help that nation rekindle the flame of learning. The dunce cap, the primacy of Christ. When you, one of the th I have a book called uh, The Bold Return of the Dunces, and in all of this mixture, you're going to see these themes throughout history. There's going to be a character named John Dunce that is going to come along which is where the term dunce cap comes from. How would you like to be John Dunce, you know, and, and have the dunce cap named after you? Which, by the way, if you don't know what the word dunce means, it's not a compliment. It means idiot, fool, dolts. It's one who doesn't really have a good brain on their, uh, in, in their noggin, and they're not doing so hot because of it. And that's a dunce. And yet, John Dunce was considered possibly the most brilliant man in his generation. And not just that, but he's one of the top three minds, scholarly minds in the entire Middle Ages. So how in the world does his name get associated with foolishness? Well, he stood by a certain idea in his age and generation, and that was that Jesus Christ was the center of all learning and knowledge. And so he had a hat on his head. Yes, it's a little awkward to think about. That was a little pointy. So if you've ever seen a dunce cap, it's a pointy cap. Uh, like a wizard's cap. But his was not a wizard's cap. His was like a finger pointing upwards, saying, you want to understand the true source of all knowledge? 
It's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. So when the Enlightenment period came along, you could understand why the dunces, who were the followers of John Dunce, might have been ridiculed a bit, because the Enlightenment period was moving God from the center of education to man. It was a move from God uh, theology as being the basis of thought to humanism, and the man being the center of what matters, being the reasoning point. And as a result, the dunces were the great threat, and so they begin to be ridiculed and treated as if they're the ones that are recalcitrant and they need to sit in the corner of the classroom. And so as a result, this is something that we're going to see actually initiated and originated by Alfred. In other words, this thinking of putting Christ at the center of education is actually an Alfred the Great thing. It's not just a John Dunce thing, and it's pretty remarkable. The Battle of the Atlantic. If any of you have gone through the World War II series, there's a message. I think it's even called the Battle of the Atlantic. But in the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, which, and I, I have a summary of it here, but it's the, to defeat the primary bad guys. So the, the Allies are trying to figure out who's our real bad guy. Is it Hirohito from Japan? Because he is a bad guy. Uh, is it Mussolini from Italy? Or is it Hitler in Germany? And I think most of you that know anything about World War II, you really know the problem wasn't just Mussolini and Hirohito. They had power because of Hitler. Hitler's the real problem. Okay, let's take out Hitler. Where's he at? He's in Berlin. All right, let's go to Berlin. No, no, not so fast. If you want to deal with the primary bad guy, you need to deal with your primary battlefront. And that was the Atlantic Ocean. You see, as long as the Atlantic Ocean was, there was a skirmish, you couldn't get across to Europe, which is across the English Channel, because it was controlled by U-boats. And as a result, you couldn't get into and break through the Atlantic Wall uh, into Europe to actually take uh, Berlin and to take Hitler. So as a result, you have to start with first things first. And that's the same with what's going on in Alfred. That's the same that needs to happen inside of us, that we need to begin with first things first, which sometimes is a re-education program. Let's just start afresh. So to defeat the primary bad guy, Hitler, Churchill first had to win the primary battle, the Battle of the Atlantic. So listen to uh, this quote from Benjamin Merkel in The White Horse King. This is the same one I said before, but seeing the deplorable state of his own inadequate education and the general level of ignorance found throughout his kingdom, Alfred set himself to righting this grievous wrong. When you see something, you see a Hitler in your generation, you see something that is hindering your uh, ability to function, then you address it the same way Alfred is. Recruiting the six warriors. Listen, listen to how Alfred is going to handle his issue. To help him solve his Yeti problem, what is he going to do? He has a yearning to improve Wessex. He is going to recruit six warriors. These are all the greatest scholars of his generation. Werferth, Plegmund, Ethelstan, listen, listen to this name, Werewolf, Grimbald, and Asser. Asser is actually going to be the one that's going to write the memoirs of Alfred for the generations after. But there's six of them. After enticing these six men to Wessex with promises of countless gifts and places of honor, Alfred secured their services as his personal readers. In exchange for his generous ring-giving, these scholars stayed at the king's side and read to him from whatever books the king could procure. Alfred couldn't read. I mean, why would he be able to read? Well, technically, he had a basis of knowledge because his mom used to read to him growing up. He had more knowledge than anyone else in his, his generation because of his kingly royal status. But he didn't know how to read Latin, and, so, and they didn't have any books in the Anglo-Saxon tongue. And so as a result, this Christian heritage that they had, which the Romans had conquered, and then because the Ro Roman Empire became Christian, Great Britain was a Christian nation for a whole period of time, but that had grown weak. Sound familiar? In other words, what started out as a great strength had fallen into disrepair. And so he had all the echoes in his culture of a Christian history but no evidence of it in the behavior of the people. All through the day and occasionally during the king's sleepless nights, these six men stood ready to help Alfred make good use of an idle moment in the court, stepping in to read and discuss with the king as many of the great works of Christendom as the king could obtain. Every moment of his life, he is filling his mind and his understanding with Christian thought. 
He wants to learn how to think like a believer. And as a result, he wants to change his nation around these truths. These men also worked to buy, borrow, copy, or acquire in any way possible whatever books could be found to expand the virtually non-existent library of Wessex. Since nearly all of these works were composed in Latin, the king's readers had the difficult task of translating each passage for Alfred into Anglo-Saxon, discussing the meaning and implications of the text until the king's curiosity was satisfied and he urged them to continue. The art of yetiim. So this is what I want you to grab a hold of in your life. This is the reason I'm giving this message is not so that we can just go, oh, what an interesting history that is, but so that we can be inspired to work in a similar fashion in our own life. The art of yearning to improve, applying the Alfred oomph to each and every area of our life. So let's think about what it would look like if we were yetiing ourselves the way we talk. I mean, you know how we just sort of accept the fact that this is the way I am. And I've had many encounters with people, especially as they get a little older, they start to get a little set in their ways. And they're like, you know what? If you don't like me the way I am, I guess it's too bad. And so you get this sort of attitude, like I'm stuck this way, you put up with it. And I'm just going to say, that's just not how we function as Christians, okay? We're always ready, malleable to improve to change if it is not showing love, if it is not a delivery vehicle of the grace of God and the nature of God, well, then that needs to alter. The way we talk, the way we act, the way we walk, the way we learn, the way we read, the way we listen, the way we lead. Could you imagine if you allowed the Spirit of God to take each one of these individual areas and and unpack it for you and and to ask Him Do you desire to improve this? The Holy Spirit is the improver. He is the one that desires to come in and sharpen the pencil. He's the one that comes in and brings out that which is hindering and establishes that which helps. What about yetiing our marriages? Yearning to improve our marriages. Imagine if we started with that as a premise and saying whatever it takes. I don't want to just compare and say I have a better marriage than Chuck down the road. To say, I want to have a marriage that is befitting of heaven, that showcases heaven. And so it doesn't matter what I did 20 years ago. What matters is what I do today. And we can easily develop bad habits and bad patterns in these areas. Yet in our families, what if we were to say, you know what? I want to do this better than anyone in my generation. I want to be a father maybe that has never even existed in this entire generation or a mother. In other words, this is an attitude and an approach that says, I don't just accept the fact that, yeah, I've had these challenges, yeah, and these kids sure are rascals, and you know, it's really hard to do this. Instead of saying, God, work on me. Through this vessel, I want you to show the kingdom of heaven. Yet in our businesses, you know, if you have any operation that is interfacing with this world, you have an opportunity to interface with non-believers and to showcase the love and the grace of Jesus. In your business, you also may have workers that you can influence and disciple in and through this, and there is an improved way that you could go after. You could do it better than anyone in your generation. Yet in our ministries. In other words, just because we're doing, we're doing Christian work doesn't need, mean we need to do it in a schlocky fashion. Have you ever seen how many people justify it because it's a Christian thing? And it's like, well, you know, the quality, it's Christian. Well, I understand what they mean by that. We don't have the money uh, flows that the secular world has. And so, yeah, ours can be schlocky, right? I don't think that's how God does things. The fact that God is a, you know, to call him a believer makes it sound sort of funny, doesn't it? He's God. But when he does his work, it's good. It's very good. And so we need to remember that there's a pattern that has been set that we reveal in and through our lives. Kaizen. So when I was in college, I had to watch a, it was actually a very fascinating documentary on Kaizen. I don't know how many of you guys heard that word. If you hang out in the business side, uh, people love to throw that word out. It used to be a popular word about, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. You were really hip if you used it. And, but it means 
constant improvement. And it's the Japanese way. What the Japanese would do is they wouldn't usually invent things. They would take the things that the Americans invented and make them better. So we would invent a car and then they would make a better car. We would invent a stereo system and they would make a better stereo system. And the Americans are like, what? You know, hey, this is, you know, made in America. This is what we buy. And everyone's like, but that's a better product. And you have to admit, it really works. You see, they take something and make it better. And that was the principle of Kaizen, which is why, I don't know, 15 years ago, everyone's like, Kaizen, we need to get on board with this thing because the Japanese are running away with all the market. We need to get our act together, America. We need to Kaizen too. Well, Kaizen, just as a heads up for all of you, is not a Japanese idea. It's not an American idea. It's not a German idea. It's a Jesus idea. You see, constant improvement and increasing excellence in our life is not something the Japanese came up with. It's called sanctification. The word in the Greek, which happened long before the Japanese started saying kaizen, is hagiosmos. It's not actually as nice sounding of a word as kaizen, I have to admit. It's not, anytime you have the word hog in a word, it sort of diminishes the word and the beauty of it. You feel like some mud is splattered all over it somehow, and there's like a sound going with it. But it means constant improvement, and this is a God idea. 1 Timothy 4.3, this is the will of God your hagiosmos, your sanctification. What is God's desire for you? He desires to constantly improve you. He, he desires to actually sharpen you more and more, to reveal the kingdom of heaven through your life, to remove all hindrance, all baggage that is setting you, all weights that are besetting you, and to establish in your life that which would reveal the kingdom of heaven without obstruction, he wants to remove blur, fog. He wants to establish clarity. He wants to establish Jesus in you in the way that truly fulfills your calling. The river of life. Now, you guys have heard of the river of life. You know, you know it's like coursing through uh, the heavenly realms and, uh, and it flows from the throne of God, right? But all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see this same river. And Ezekiel is going to see this river, and it's going to be gushing out from that same throne room because it's going to be gushing out of the temple of God in the book of Ezekiel. And so we see this river of life, which Jesus is going to tie in with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That there's this river that is going to gush out. Remember when Jesus is on the cross, he's going to be pierced, and out of his side is going to flow a river. And it is of blood and water. Remember, to the Jew, blood is life. This is life water. And that's not an accident. This is living water that is going to gush out of his innermost man. And that shouldn't be lost on us because Jesus is going to actually say, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like you know, scoffing at him. It takes 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it up in, in three days. But the temple of which he spoke was his body. And then he's going to say, out of the innermost, you know, in, the, in some translations, it's out of their belly will flow rivers of living water, speaking of all those that believe in him. But out of his innermost man, which is this center portion, is going to flow that same river. And then, but he's already forewarned us that out of our innermost man is going to flow that river. What is that river? It's called the river of life. And it flows out of the house of God, which we are, says Paul. So this river as is going to be seen in Ezekiel, is ever deepening. Now remember, I'm given this. If, if some of you are hearing this going, I've heard Eric speak on this so many times. I know, I see, I could read those bubble thoughts. Well, I know that because I'm the one speaking it. However, this is, I started this premise, this is what I need to hear. I need to remind myself of these core truths that have always moved and motivated my life and I want to freshly see them. I want to freshly respond to them. I'm in a remodel season, guys. And I'm ready to do some serious yetting. So here we are in Ezekiel, chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. So Ezekiel seems to have this like angelic character with him who brings his showing him this temple and they're measuring it out. And then he's going to bring him back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters came up to my ankles. So there's this gushing river that is flowing out of the house of God. And this man is going to bring Ezekiel into it, and he's up to his ankles. And then he's, and again he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters. The waters came up to my knees. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. Now if you look at this as the Holy Spirit or you could look at it as the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you know how people will say, oh, I already have the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, God's already done his work in me and you're up to your ankles. It's like, uh, guys, let's do some yetiing. How about we walk with the current? The Holy Spirit is moving us this direction. We're supposed to move with Him. And when we move with Him, it gets deeper. And it gets deeper. And it gets deeper. And with every step forward, it's more of God and less of me. You see, there is a yetiing process that is taking place. It's called sanctification. Where that which is of earth is becoming submerged. And that which is of heaven is being seen more and more through my movements. With every step forward, you see more water and less Eric. And that's precisely what is needed to change the world in which we live. But how many of us want to stop and sort of dam it up and say, this is where I'm going to stop, you know, because, boy, I'm deeper than everyone else around me. I mean, going to your knees is a, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, I mean, that's a big adventure in life. You know, I'm ready to retire. Keep moving. Do not stop there. Pull up your tent stakes. Onward march. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live. Everything will live wherever the river goes. So you want to go after life? Go where the river goes. When the river moves, you don't stall. You don't stay. You move with it. Now, I know what it means. It means that everywhere this river goes, things are going to start to bloom and blossom and grow. That's how a river works. However, you're in the river. And you go where the river goes, and that's where the life is. It's bringing life, and it wants to bring it to you as well. Don't stunt the process. John 7, 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's an interesting translation. We have innermost man, we have belly, which belly is just, you know, if you want to ask me, it's just not a good translation uh, of, of it because for, for us, we just think of a big round belly and that doesn't sound quite right. Most of us are like, you know what? I'm fine without the living water. I really don't want the belly. I've been working out a lot and I'm really trying to get away from that. But heart is a really interesting translation because that's what's going to be pierced at the cross. And that's what's going to gush out the water. You know, the fact that a physician would say, the fact that Jesus bled out blood and water, which is, it's always funny when we read the, the statement because it's like they seem shocked that blood and water comes out. It's like, what'd you expect to come out? And yet, it shouldn't have been that way because when you have blood and water gush out when it's pierced, that's a, sh that's a sign that the heart imploded that it's likely that Jesus didn't just die of the effects of nails between his, uh, in, his, in his hands and feet and just the scourging, but that he died from a broken heart, which is a profound statement for those of us you know, who love Jesus to just ponder. The Yeti River. So remember that river, that river that just is constantly deepening? Well, that's running through Alfred, and it's ever-deepening. This man's life, you could call it convicting. I would like to call it inspiring. What he is going to choose to do with the one life that he has on earth, and by the way, living back then, you didn't last very long. This man is going to die at the age of 50, and that's a long life. I'm almost 52, and what he accomplished is so grand compared to anything I have done. And it's, it's, it's humbling in that regard. That's why I'm saying it could be convicting or it could be inspiring. I'm going to choose the inspiring because the convicting, I don't know what to do with that. That doesn't move me forward. The inspiring does on this point because I can't change what has happened in my first 51 years and 10 months. I, I can only respond today. And those of you that know me know that I have not been sitting on my thumbs in my 51 years and 10 months. 
However, there is more, and I do not want to say, well, look at all that I have done. I want to go after the fullness of what a life could discover in this earth. So here's a quote from the White Horse King. On November 11, St. Martin's Day, in the year 887, Asser, remember that's one of the six warriors that were scholars that were training him, Asser recorded that the king made a significant and miraculous leap, suddenly being able to read and translate the Latin text for himself. Soon, the king was fluently working through the church services, reading the Psalms for himself and working his way through a selection of patristic texts. This man is going to have this breakthrough and he's going to understand Latin and know how to translate it. So what is he going to do? Just keep it for himself? Why is he going after this in the first place? It wasn't just for himself, it was for his nation. Watch what he does with this. Now finding himself moving freely through the enormous body of literature that made up the great works of Christendom, Alfred's mind instantly turned to the people of Wessex. How could this great wealth of Christian wisdom be passed on to his countrymen? If Christian virtues were to return to England, then the Anglo-Saxons would need to return to Christian learning. He himself is going to translate the scriptures. He's going to translate books from the Latin to his people so that they can know it too. But they don't know how to read. With an eye toward restoring this learned piety to the people, Alfred orchestrated a tremendous revival of literacy, revival that culminated in the greatest literary renaissance ever experienced in Anglo-Saxon Britain. With the Vikings driven from the borders of Wessex and the restruction of the Anglo-Saxon military well underway, Alfred soon began to find moments of rest from his other kingly duties, moments in which he could turn his attentions to this problem of Anglo-Saxon literacy. Soon a plan began to take shape, a plan striking in both its ambition and its simplicity. First, Alfred decided that his goal was nothing less than the literacy of every freeborn man within his borders. Now, I don't know what your vision is for your life, but this is so massive and so ridiculous that we could all look back at it with an incredulous snarl and like, yeah, right. Look, look at this. Now, this is an illiterate people. Not one of them knows how to read. Not one. They, it's not like they were a group that just had a poor public school education. This is a whole nation that has never gone to school, that has never learned a thing. And now he desires to have nothing less than the literacy of every freeborn man within his borders. If the purpose of recovering education was to recover piety, in other words, he feels that to gain back devotion to Christ, he needs to gain back Christian learning. So if that's what he has to, he needs, that's his battle of the Atlantic. He needs to go after that first if he's going to gain back Christian value and Christian thought and Christian living. So if the purpose of recovering education was to recover piety, then it would do no good to educate only a small and exclusive circle of hermit-like scholars, leaving the rest of the Anglo-Saxons ignorant and impious. Thus, the king of Wessex wanted to see wisdom passed on to as many of his subjects as possible, introducing the radical proposal that Christian learning ought not to be solely the enterprise of the monks and priests of the medieval church, such a radically ambitious goal was in danger of being so optimistic as to seem unachievable and thus dismissed from the start. So ignoring the fact that all of the learning of the Christian West had been handed down in the Latin language, Alfred decided to aim for fluency in the vernacular of his people, the Anglo-Saxon tongue. And this man did it. This man didn't, this is just one thing that this man did. He changed the educational infrastructure. Even his thanes, the highest ranking members of society, he said, basically, if you want to keep your position, you have to go to school. And these guys are like, uh, I've never been to school. I'm you know, 63 years old. Well, it's your choice. So <laughs> some of these guys could not do it. They could not fathom going to school. It's like their dignity was at stake. And he's like, all right, next. If you're, if you're not hungry to learn, if you're not going to yeti in your own life, then you don't belong in leadership in this country. This is where we're going. We're going after Jesus Christ. We're going to do this right. He's the one that invented the castle walls. He's the one that invented the moat around. He's the one that created the defensive structures of a nation. He's the one that changed the currency of Wessex. They had a worthless currency. He had everyone turn in their currency. And for every, what was it, four of their pennies, he gave them one back. But that one, 
shot up in value so extreme, became the most valuable currency in all the world. In other words, because he did it well, instead of a diluted currency, he says, let's have the best monetary system. He overhauled the entire system. He remodeled it all. Never seen anything like it, guys. But what was his end purpose? Jesus Christ. That's what really inspires me. In other words, his end was that the people would see Jesus. If you're remodeling for that end, you have the power of God as your wind. He will carry you forward. Most of us in this room have a very smallish vision for what we're here on earth for. I don't know where that comes from, but it's too small. And I would just ask you to set your life, vision, and purpose before God and allow him to upgrade it. You have been handed an assignment, but most people are not like Alfred. They do not take their assignment and maximize it to the full degree. Some of you are already past 50 years and you can't even imagine. It's like, well, God, I've already blown it if I'm after 50. Well, who told you that? We live in a generation where our, we have more longevity. Take advantage of that and start going after this now. The impact of biographical example. When we hear a story like Alfred, it actually has the power. It's not that we're supposed to live as Alfred. We're supposed to go back in time. It's the only way to live this is back in the you know, 800s. Well, that's not at all true. It's an example of what you do with the time you have. And biography has the potential to give us an example, not to give us a command, but to give us a description or a demonstration of what someone can do with the time that they have in one of these bodies. And I tell you what, it's a pretty amazing story. We're going to finish with this. John 2, 9 through 10. So do you guys remember uh, Jesus' first miracle? It's at the wedding of Cain. It's a really strange place to have a miracle. It's like, it wasn't a big miracle. I mean, it is. Don't get me wrong. I mean, to turn water into wine is pretty big. But in scope, in influence, because you can do a miracle that is seen by millions, or you could do a miracle that is noted by a few. And this is a grand achievement to turn water into wine, but it's only a few people that actually know about it. Of course, it's in the Bible, so all of us know about it too. But in the moment, it wasn't known. And it's very intriguing to me that God did this. And I've gone back to this one story many, many times for multiple reasons. Like when I used to speak on relationships with the opposite sex, I would say, note what happens when you invite Jesus to be at your wedding. You know, it was a nice uh, turn on that one because, hey, you know, this is what happens. Jesus then comes in and he turns normal everyday relationship into something very, very special. So make Jesus your guest of honor. You know, that, that's one way that I've used it over the years. There's another way too, and that is this way. It fits into this yetiing idea that what Jesus is going to show indirectly, but it's inferred in the, in the miracle, is that there was a tradition among the Jews, and that is they bring out the best wine first, and then when everyone, you know, is, I guess, getting a little slosh-bellied uh, as they're going along, and they lose maybe the ability to taste the distinct and distinguish between the flavors. That's at least my thought. I don't know that it ever said that in the text. But that they then bring out a lesser wine. So what happens is you start with the best, and then you get lesser over time. Now, I, I told you about the river. What does the river do? You start out with something pretty special. My ankles are in living water. I mean, this is pretty special, right? And then as you progress, does it get less? No, it gets deeper. And so the kingdom of heaven is based on a completely different paradigm. When you heed and you move forward, you get better wine as it progresses. And so if you knew that the best wine was still up ahead and the current was pushing you in that direction, shouldn't you move with the current as opposed to come up with a justification of why you should retire right here? John 2, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, whether or not the bridegroom had any clue what was happening, I don't know, right? However, every one of the servants and the attendants knew exactly what was happening. Jesus made a statement, but has he made it to your soul? That when you progress, you think this is good wine right now? Just wait, guys. You know, and what's funny is the best wine is still up ahead. I guarantee you that because it's heaven. It's the presence of God for all eternity. Don't tell me that that's not a better wine. 
But the progression is ever deepening. It's not like, oh, it's getting deep, deep, it's getting deep. Oh, we have a drought. Oh, no, there's no more God presence for a while. Oh, just pass time until heaven now. Deeper, deeper, deeper. This is life with Jesus. So I need this message. I need to be reminded. I need to be invigorated to keep going strong as opposed to coming up with reasons why I've given my best strength already. Now I'm just going to try and level off and keep it at that level. No, no, no. I want my best days up ahead and not behind me. And I am going to beg all of you to adopt a similar mentality. Don't measure yourself by what's behind. Go after something greater. You have one shot at this thing called life. Pull an Alfred. Live it fully. Transform the world in which you live, but start with your own life. And don't accept the enemy's guff as any reason to not press forward. You have a calling on your life, and I would ask you to set it before God and allow him to upgrade it today. Father, we ask that you would do this mighty, wondrous work in us and that you would lift us from our lethargy and our passivity and that you would mobilize us and animate us for action. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to do this. May we sense the current pushing us deeper and may we follow. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.